Welcome to Meet the Manufacturers podcast, brought to you in association with Manufacture CT. On every episode, we take the opportunity to learn more about a local manufacturing business and speak to not only a member of senior management, but also a key member of the manufacturing team. Welcome to this edition of Meet the Manufacturers. On this edition, I have the privilege of speaking to Chris and John Olbrick. Chris is the CEO and John is the General Manager and also the Corporate Director of Purchasing. Gentlemen, welcome along to Meet the Manufacturers. Good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, in the middle of a pandemic as well. So to kick it off, Chris, tell me a little bit about the company, how it was created, how long it's been in business, and what do you guys actually manufacture? Well, let's see, Claire. Um, my grandfather started the company in 1924 as a scrapyard and we gravitated to, uh, back then, knives, spoons, and forks. And we did the Army mess kit knife during World War II. Wow. Um, and then in the 50s, for all the um, diners, we were making the spoons and knives and forks in the 50s. And then uh, my grandfather met Mr. Zenzimer, who invented the Zenzimer mill that cold rolls metal. And we had one of the first Zenzimer mills in Wallingford and got involved in stainless steel and rolling metal down. And basically, we do everything that a steel mill does. You see steel mills melting big pots of metal, et cetera. We do everything but melt it. So we cut it, edge it, roll it, anneal it, and put it into shapes that people can then make parts out of. So we make metal. Our customers make parts and it could go to anything from your Apple phone to cars, solar panels, medical instruments, airplane parts. You're not far from Obrick Metal. You know, coffee pot, sprinkler head, TV, watch, a blender, cars, etc. So we ship worldwide. We have 10 factories and we're celebrating 100 years in 1924. And I'm third generation and Jonathan's fourth. Wow. Amazing. What a story. I love family-run businesses. A question for you then, John. Tell me then a little bit. You've got a double header of a title within the company. Tell me a little bit about your roles and responsibilities. Uh, sure. So my uh, my career really started on the commercial side, coming up through our inside sales group. And um, you know the natural progression of our org tree is to continuously learn more about how our, our customers interact and how our supply chains evolve over time. And so Part of my learning process for the business, being the fourth generation, is just to continue uh, growing in terms of my knowledge of the business and interpersonally. And so uh, my current roles kind of evolve from those needs to, to grow. So that's why I kind of have a, a, a dual-headed title here. I laugh that, uh, you know, anytime there's some work that needs to be done, it gets assigned to me and I'm all for it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that's kind of where, where I am uh, today. You know, I, I'm, I live in Connecticut, born and raised. And so, uh, you know, the Oldbrook, New England is our distribution facility here in the Northeast. And, uh, you know, we buy from all over the world within our supply chain. So it provides a great exposure to how the business operates and how it needs to continue for us to be successful in the future. Amazing. Were you always going to go into the family business? Was it always going to be a career in manufacturing for you, John? Uh, you know, I, it, it kind of was. Uh, you know, I started on the shop floor uh, when I was 15. Well, actually, I started my first summer job here was cleaning the warehouse for our computer department. Uh, when I was 15. And then I, I did a couple years in the shop floor and I went to college for business down in Texas. So, you know, this was kind of the path I uh, enjoy. 
Chris would probably tell you, I got a passion for what we do. And, you know, uh, being able to continue the legacy of the family business is, I think, something special because there's not a lot of businesses that are, you know, successful enough to survive from the third to fourth generation. I've got the fifth generation at home and they come in with me sometimes on the weekends. So, uh, so you know, they're, they're getting ingrained into the culture as well. I was going to ask you that. Is there a fifth generation in the wings, so to speak, ready to take over? <laughs> yeah, they're a little young, you know. The other thing, Claire, is worth mentioning, I think, that, that not only do we have the family aspect and, and our associates are part of our family and we're part of theirs because people are working 30, 40 years with us, our products are so important. We all need cleaner air, cleaner water, climate change is happening, and safety. You know, lots of stuff goes into safety systems, airbags, brake parts, mm. you know, solar cells to make our air cleaner, electric cars, batteries. And so it's a very exciting you know, medical instruments to save lives. We have lots of metal that goes into um, brain clamps and, you know, operations and things like that. So again, you're not far from our metal and it's helpful metal because it's changing our lives to some part. And we're involved with that, designing it with the customers. And um, so it's very exciting and there's new products, new things happening every day. Yeah, very 20% of our business, we did not have two years ago, every year. Wow. That's how many new things there are out there. So it's pretty exciting. John, you mentioned you went to college and obviously was still within the business. Thinking mm -hmm. about your employees and what you look for in future employees, what sort of courses or skills do you look for in your workforce? Yeah, it's an interesting question because it's something we continuously bat around here in terms of what's the profile of the next generation of employees, you know, specifically people coming from, from schools. You know, we don't have a lot of MBAs on our staff, you know, because we find we are a company that's really run by people that understand the marketplace that, you know, typically grow up through experience. So when we look at bringing people in, a lot of it is not so much about the resume of their school or, or even their degrees. A lot of it comes down to the character and the personality of the, the people that we're, we're looking to hire. We say there's three C's for hiring, character, capacity, and, and capability. And, and that's really what we've zeroed in on our recent hiring profiles, especially for younger people. Uh, a question for you, Chris, if I may. Talk to me a little bit about the culture and the values within your company and how that maybe plays out with your employee culture as well. Again, we have a strong culture being in uh, business for so long and people stay for so long and it's, it's just very refreshing and people really make the difference in our company. As John said, you know, there's, you know, it's not like, you know, the degrees of MBAs or, or anything like that. It's just our culture is teamwork, working together, getting things done, making the place safer, getting the order, satisfying the customer, and at the same time, having a good work environment with the latest equipment, the latest technology. You know, so we're heavily involved with AI and, and so in the latest technology in the reroll industry and slitting industry. And our people really step up and, and get it done. It's refreshing and exciting. I think teamwork is such a huge part of, of manufacturing and we have such a rich history of manufacturing here in Connecticut. A question for you, John, if I may, what advice would you give somebody, a young person perhaps, or, or somebody returning to the workforce who is looking to explore a career in manufacturing? Why should somebody look to explore a career in manufacturing? You know, I think Chris talked about it before. The fact that, you know, our business is not what you would see in the 1920s, a steel mill. You know, we are a very dynamic 
organization. You know, I think our market is very much like that too, where we're not Apple and Google where, you know, we're, we're hundred percent technological driven, but the fact that the world's continuously evolving and, and someone like Ulbricht's always on the forefront, you know, and a lot of our customers are there too. So manufacturing, I think it's got a bad um, a rep that's not necessarily populated as it probably should. So I think there's a lot of upside to what a company like ours can bring, especially to, to younger people coming in. We talk about here you know, the uh, silver tsunami of retirements that have, are coming up. You know, one, one thing that we have on our shop floor, we have more people retiring per year than quitting. And, wow. Uh, and so there's always opportunities, especially when you come into a business like ours, to advance through the ranks with uh, hard work and success. And I think you find that a lot, at a lot of manufacturing companies everywhere. Yeah, it's got such opportunities for growth. The old adage of sort of starting at the bottom and working your way up and learning new skills. It feels really open and very exciting within the manufacturing industry, for sure. Question for you, Chris. Are you tackling any new or exciting or difficult challenges at the moment? You know, that may be due to the pandemic. It may be due to the supply chain. Are there any major opportunities or challenges that you're facing just at the moment? So challenges in the marketplace going forward here. Well, uh, you know, obviously the pandemic has been a uh, challenge. We've been working at home over 180 people since March 13th, 2020. And it looks like it's going to continue, you know, through the winter. And everybody's talking about teamwork, Claire, everybody's stepped up and we haven't missed a beat. So things are going extremely well along with that. But we have some challenges coming up in our business. You know, I think on the cost side is medical. We spent over $10 million on our medical benefits for our 1300 lives that we we support and it goes up 10% a year. I mean, it's the only thing you can go to a hospital, get an operation, you know, you don't even ask the price and that same operation, they they charge somebody $50,000 or they can charge somebody like us a quarter of a million dollars. It makes zero sense. Hospitals, medical is a big problem. The other problem for us in our business is our, our supply base, our suppliers. They're all over the place worldwide. They're buying each other. There's lots and lots of issues. There's overcapacity. It's just like yourself. If there were, you know, 15 companies in New Haven County doing podcasts, guess what? Your industry is a mess. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know, it's mm. it's a mess. When there's overcapacity, it's a mess. Yeah. And so our supply base, some costs like medical. I mean, we can control our costs on wages, labor, and decide what equipment to buy, but. <laughs> Something like medical, there's no control. And at the same time, just like to say, you know, Connecticut has been good to us. We've thrived here since 1924. The workforce is out there. And this is a great location between New York and Boston. And Connecticut's been good. I mean, Connecticut's got its issues, but overall, we're, we're happy here. Yeah, it's got such a rich history in manufacturing as well. And I totally hear you, you know, with the situation with medical here in the United States as a whole, obviously as a Brit, when I first arrived here, it it blew my mind. And here I am a couple of years on and it continues to blow my mind on a on a daily basis. Question for you, John, if I may. When you look back over your entire career within the company, was it everything that you hoped it would be in terms of achievements or contributions that it's made to your life? I know it is for my dad. He gets to work with me every day. So uh, (laughs) I'm not sure he calls that a benefit, but I'm saying nothing. For for me and, and my and my career, you know, I'm very content with the with the decisions I've made and the progress I've I've made in the company, and you know, I'm sure my father can 
voice the same thing. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, I, I've got an opportunity to bounce around the different roles and, and learn a whole business is, uh, is very rare. You know, I, I met my wife through the company and, uh, you know, we've got a lot of friends through the company and, and you know, I've got uh, obviously no regrets in terms of, of where I am in life. Oh, no, that's good to hear. Have you got any uh, predictions, John, about the future of manufacturing in your view or about doing business in the state of Connecticut and beyond? Um, yeah, I've got a lot of predictions, sure. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say uh, two things. I mean, one of the things that I struggle with uh, on, a, on a yearly basis is the fact that a lot of our customers at Oldbrook, you know, so the people making parts, selling it to assembly shops or big OEMs are still mom and pop organizations most of our customer base are not publicly run companies and similar to the to the growing pains we've had as a family business uh, we know a lot of these first generations transitioning to second or second to third are going to be facing the same thing and if you look at the law of averages in terms of who survives the the generational transition it's relatively low so i, I foresee a, a lot of our customers in, in connecticut specifically transitioning to larger conglomerates, selling out to larger entities, being bought by private equity. And I think that's going to present a whole new level of challenges for us and how we do business. It's nice to not sell directly to Ford. You know, it's nice to sell to someone who sells to Ford. So for us, you know, we're going to have to constantly be evolving how we, I think, work on relationship development, develop new products, because our customer base will be evolving in the future. So I think that's similar to what Chris was saying about supply chain that our, our vendors continuously consolidate. You know, they're probably moving a little quicker because the, the cost of operations are significantly higher and there's not as many of them than, um, than probably our customers. But I could see in the next uh, 10 years, a lot of our customers following the same path. It's a common theme that comes up when I've been doing this series of podcasts uh, on Meet the Manufacturers. A question for you, Chris, if I may. How does that supply chain affect your business you know there's a lot of people supporting local manufacturing for local companies and trying to reduce the waste if you like from shipping goods all around the world how has that affected your business the shifting supply chain is uh is a key that thing that we work on all the time that's why we have 10 factories worldwide you know people have been in connecticut they they moved to uh, china and now they've moved back to mexico or there's Connecticut companies that have moved directly from here to Mexico and we have a facility in Mexico. So we continue doing the business. So we follow our customers. If our customers went to Antarctica, we'd probably uh, send Jonathan <laughs> down there to visit. Them. So, um, so, so it's, you know, and, and now it's shifting now because lots of people, low cost industries went to China, we supply them and now there's tariffs and problems and, communications issues and freight problems. And it just showed during the Japanese tsunami, couldn't paint a car for like two months because all the paint manufacturers were right near the uh, nuclear reactors. And some auto parts ran out of parts in three days after the wow. tsunami. That's how tight the supplies are, which is crazy. Mm. You know, brilliant MBAs who thought about all that, you know. <laughs> so the supply chain is, is key. And that's one of our strengths is our of our company is to understand it, help our customers and get them material so they can make their parts on time, the right specs and the right credentials backing up the specs. Mm, gotcha. You know, one, one thing I don't think a lot of people realize is that the country of China melts as much stainless steel in one month as, as America does in an entire year. Wow. 
And when you look at how supply chain evolution is, is occurring, whether you agree with tariffs or don't, you know, the fact that the Chinese market is so robust when it comes to just making steel and the, the need for a localized supply chain in America that's competitive, it, it's becomes a, a, you know, an ever more important part of say, governmental policy to address. So it's something that I, I think, you know, as we, as we move forward, you know, we've seen the Chinese stainless steel imports drop drastically over the last couple of years. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that those numbers stay low because our, our local steel supply sources, uh, whether it's AK Steel or Allegheny or North American Stainless or Atacampu, they do need support from our local businesses just to make sure that the U.S. has a robust enough supply chain to support the products that we still need to make here. Yeah. John, could you describe the customer or the end user of the products that you make? You spoke about the mom and pop type enterprises that you're supplying. Tell me a little bit more about them. What are their goals and their needs that you have to meet? Sure. You know, I find a common, common thing for our customers is there's a, a lot of vendors they can buy from. There's fewer customers they can sell to. It's almost a reverse pyramid when it comes to the supply chain for some of our guys, just because of the consolidation of, of what all the OEMs do in specific markets. Mm. So I find, I find a common theme too within our customers is a lot of them are focused on individual markets, you know, whether yet we have a customer that's 70% automotive or 90% medical. And so they kind of live and die based on the activity within some of those markets. You don't get a lot of diversification within say that the mom and pop specifically in Connecticut. But then, you know, I do find America funny too, that believe it or not, we are still very regional when it comes to the industries that we serve. You know, you look at Connecticut here, we do a lot of medical business and in the Waterbury Valley, uh, a lot of automotive ammunition. You know, you go to Western Michigan, it's all uh, automotive. You go to California, it's all aerospace still. So so it is, it is funny just to see the regional trends still exist, even with supply chains being as robust and quick as they are, uh, you still have a, a high concentration of industries in, in specific areas. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the actual products that you manufacture and ship? Tell me a little bit more about what you actually make. Sure. Uh, so we are a stainless steel, nickel alloy and titanium uh, precision reroller in, in strip and wire. And uh, what that means is that we will buy big rolls of steel either in flat products or, or round products, and we will roll them out to tolerances for precision applications. We don't compete with large volume sheet houses, which drive the majority of the pounds in, in, in the world. You know, we, we really focus on the development of the specialty end products for unique applications. So if you look at our three largest markets, uh, I'll go down to three real quick. The largest market we have is automotive, where we'll do a lot of specialty steels for uh, gaskets, for airbags, for uh, sensors and brakes. Then the second one is medical, where we do a lot of steels for catheters, for the wiring, for uh, reinforcement of tubing, or, or for surgical devices, and uh, even things like batteries that uh, get implanted for pacemakers, you know, selling to people making battery cans. And then the last one is aerospace. You know, I think Chris touched on it before, but really uh, almost every plane that gets made from uh, Boeing and Airbus has some sort of Ulfric steel metal in it, whether, wow. it's, uh, whether it's part of the engine components or the honeycomb structures or uh, lightweight, durable structural parts of the wing or, or even shims to put the cockpits together. So, so you know, when, when it comes to the products we sell, again, I, I, whenever I give a tour, I, I tell people, 
you know, the steel might look all the same when it starts, but when it finishes, the customization going out the door and then what our customers then turn it into is really what allows a lot of products to be made throughout the world. You know, we're below the melter in the supply chain, we're above our you know, stampers, and you know, we don't sell to a lot of OEMs, which, you know, again, I laugh, is always a very comfortable spot to be you don't have to negotiate with the fortune 500 company <laughs> very much so and i think the message i'm getting loud and clear is that pretty much everybody on this planet has at some point come into contact with an oldbrook product of some sort i guess you know if you're looking at aerospace and medical and and everything that you guys actually manufacture in north america for sure you know i'm not so sure about russia or, or uh, china but <laughs> in north america. we'll take that we'll take north america alone yeah Chris, a question for you. What do you imagine the next phase of your career is going to look like? Is there any particular areas for growth or, or opportunities that you're preparing for at the moment? Well, I guess my next phase is semi-retirement or retirement, I guess. That's what they say. Uh, <laughs> uh, I thought I could just keep on going after 45 years, but I guess there's an end in sight, huh? Supposedly. But, what what um, would retirement look like for you, Chris? What would it look like? You're, you're looking at it. I think retirement looks like what it is now that, that I keep working now. <laughs> um, no, but you know, it's very important that we, uh, you know, I'm third generation. My father had two brothers and the second generation who ran the company brought us to our point in um, the third generation. And of course, John represents the fourth generation and the fifth our little kids, you know, we need, you know, professional management, you know, systems in place, you know, new managers coming through. And so setting up the next stage of our company so we can continue past 100 years, which includes making sure we have the right equipment, the right benefits, the, the right markets, understand things, understand the supply chain. Again, we're, we're needed in the market with the products that we make, but you can lose it too if you don't do things right or if you have the wrong focus or go in the wrong direction. So it's important for me to give that, help give that direction so we can continue on for more generations. Got it. So essentially paying attention to trends and staying on point with everything. John, what about yourself? What do you imagine the next phase of your career to look like when your dad's on the golf course? Any particular areas for growth or, or opportunities in the future for yourself? For me personally, I mean, I, I just joined our board of directors earlier this year. And so, so again, it's just kind of the next phase of, of my development. I've been working very closely with my father on, on succession planning for our business in total. You know, I, I think we've been lucky through the years that, as Chris said, it hasn't been the Olbrick family making every decision uh, in, in our company. We've been able to hire a lot of very good, solid outside people to take key roles within our organization and get us to where we currently are. And so I think my next role is really just continuing that type of legacy where we're a very financially sound, culturally stable uh, organization. I, I always tell people, I go, you don't work for the Olbrick family, you work with the Olbrick family. Very um, much so, yeah. Last question to wrap up, gentlemen, if I may. 2024 will be 100 years, which is an incredible milestone for any business. And tell me, how do you plan on celebrating or marking your centenary? Well, you know, in our 90th anniversary, we, uh, you know, we went to all the locations, we had a dinner with everybody in an outside venue. We had some um, some gifts for people, jackets and things like that. So I, I would imagine 100 years, we'll probably do some of the same things, celebrate 100 years of history, 
And we help shape our company, our country, as the country helped shape us and generations of employees. We've had some employees who've worked for us, uh, their families worked for us for three generations. So they're truly part of our family. And, you know, it hasn't been easy. Uh, We've been through the wars and the recessions. I don't know. I think we've been through 19 recessions. We've closed factories. We opened factories. But what's really good is our workforce and celebrating, you know, sitting sitting at one of these dinners with a spouse saying, hey, you know, not only did you help educate my three kids, but, you know, I've had some serious health issues and your outstanding medical program helped save my life. And, you know, you hear these stories uh, all the time. And it really comes out a lot more during some of our celebrations. So, and we'll probably have open houses at our locations for the families, some picnics, dinners, some kind of gift. So it's something to celebrate. It's nice. It's definitely something to celebrate and to be exceptionally proud of. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. I think the future of manufacturing is safe in your hands, perhaps for another hundred years, uh, especially as now you've uh, started to groom the next generation already, John, particularly. But thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Claire, very much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of Meet the Manufacturers. If you would like to find out more about Manufacture CT or you would like to join the organisation, you can visit the website manufacturect.org.